So we both had a bit of a Shakespearean week Yeah, week. unexpectedly. Well, we went to stay with a friend in Stratford-upon-Avon and managed to get tickets for the new Midsummer Night's Dream that's open this week on Tuesday with, with uh, Matt Bainton from Ghosts playing oh, I Bottom. I love Ghosts. Absolutely brilliant. Please absolutely see. brilliant. And, and, I mean, we can talk about it, but, but it, controversial decision-making in how it was used, so they got rid of all the fairies. Okay. So the fairies were just voices with little lights. Clever. And they did something that Joe said that they used when, when Joe played Oberon there a, a number of years ago. They had this thing where the lights flick off your thumb, so you can flick a light across a stage and then somebody turns them there's on, and so it's as if the light has travelled across, which is a sort of basic thing, but they did have what I imagine was a fair bit of Magic Circle stuff in it. Oh, brilliant. I like the sound absolutely of it. beautiful yeah. and very simple, um, virtually no set at all, just lots of uh, like sort of paper lights, but then a, ver- a very sort of open black set in the RST in the main um, theatre at Stratford. And it was gorgeous. It was a sort of 80s Adam and the Ants type romantic punk yeah, yeah. style, yeah. like late 70s, I early wore 80s. Shirts inspired by him. They had oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. And his pirate phase. Adamant. He was yeah. Well. Adamant, he was, yeah. Adamant. So that yeah. sort of design. Um, but yeah, and they had a sort of, instead of Peter Quince, it was Rita Quince. And, and, but Matt Bainton as Bottom was just superb oh that's so yeah. lovely when you see something so i was at the other extreme so i went to see yell farber's king lear at the Almeida. Oh, amazing yeah and yeah. um which also interestingly kind of quite bare set i mean you know yell farber very much has a style of directing so it's quite bare with a lot of smoke and and sort of smoky light and um fire generally an ass a bit of fire somewhere and um a kind of great metallic beaded curtain which in the storm scene somebody ran along the side moving the beads which was brilliant you know yeah, sort of yeah. rough magic um but um starred uh danny sapani as leah and i must say i mean just we were just talking about the review I've written, which, you know, is pretty ravey. But I, I feel I haven't done justice to his performance, which is just so compelling. Really? And insightful and beautifully spoken, but also so detailed, you know, that you feel that by the end of the play, you know him as a man. I, I found it incredibly sort of moving and powerful yeah and it's matched by the, the sort of as i see it the, the sort of conceit of the production is that it's cast clark peters oh who wow actually i have to say it's one of my favorite actors yeah yeah ever. he's gorgeous and i did the, that terrible embarrassing thing at an awards ceremony of going up to him and saying you are one of my favorite uh, actors ever and that's all kind of quite embarrassing playing for the him. fool <laughs> and he's the fool so yeah. he's much older than the usual fool and how yale farber has conceived it is that Leah and the fool sort of mirror each other. So their movements actually mirror each other. And the conversations between them are very, very still and very serious and absolutely play with the idea of wisdom and foolishness. (gasps) And I would say really the first half is one of the best Leahs ever. How wonderful. Ever, ever. The second half is less sort of slightly less sort of engrossing but that's Shakespeare's fault really I think yeah, I always yeah. think there's a play that kind of doesn't quite know where it's heading yeah, in the second yeah. half but uh, it, it is um oh it's really good so yeah I think that's nice brilliant I think that's brilliant because whenever I've 
Dunlear or Seenlear or spoken to actor mates who are in Lear, it's always that thing of how do you make the fool funny? Mm. And But actually... To sort of hold that up and say, where does it say he should be? Where does it say he should be funny? And he isn't funny. He's wise. Yeah. It's 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 a, a sort of, you feel it's one of those kind of moments where, of in, you know, total inspiration of, um, there's a um, an essay in the programme by Emma Smith, who um, I'm, is a Shakespearean scholar of whom I am very fond. And I think she's a brilliant scholar yeah. she's, um, at Hartford. And yeah, and she talks about where the fool comes from and the way that the fool would have been played. And it, that's very interesting. And yeah. You feel that is the starting point for the whole thing. But it's really interesting about, you know, jesters and fools, particularly at that time in Elizabethan England. And, you know, actually across the world i think in china and stuff and various places in in eastern europe the fool or the jester was often the priest mm, yeah. uh and, and they it, you know the, the in carnivals or street fairs or whatever he would be very very present and that it, it, they're the truth tellers yeah yeah, they're yeah. not. They're not there to, you know, for the pranks and the way that we've looked back retrospectively and put them in silly hats and yeah. oh, they're just jumping around and juggling. I think there was a certain amount of that, but actually, it, they were there to hold up the mirror. Yeah. Well, yeah. Emma says in the essay that there are different types of fools, and you know, when he says um, about uh, the bitter fool and the wise fool. Yeah. You know, there were different types of fools. Yeah. So it is really interesting. It's not quite where I imagined starting this podcast. Yeah. Where, in which we. <laughs> Which our plan is to talk about romantic comedy. I know. But it's a good moment. There'll be a link. We'll find a way. We'll <laughs> segue with ease. I think we're just going to say it. Hello and welcome <laughs> to this week's um, episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic with me at the critic, Sarah Crompton. And with me, the actress, Nancy Carroll. And now in a neat segue. I know. <laughs> Actually, before we move on, just in, in reference to other podcasts. Yeah. Um, of course, there is a very, very gory gouging of the eyes of Gloucester. Oh, yeah, of course. Alert. Combat um, Kate's work. Done by Combat Kate. So if you're interested in how, finding out how Combat Kate copes with staging the gouging of the eyes. Um, yeah. That's but you a said it was episode. pretty extraordinary. It's really, it's really quite grim. There yeah. was a, there were a whole row of women critics <laughs> sort of absolutely with their hands over their eyes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. All the male critics were looking kind of quite macho, but I think they were struggling a bit. She oh, does gosh. it, actually, it's very interesting. She does it really through pressure. You, it's the sense of the force required to do it that kind of is so horrific. Oh, my gosh. Draws it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a perfect segue into one day. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Which has been our light relief this week. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great. I, I got really into it. I, I didn't, I wasn't one of the ones that read it because I'm such a slow reader. When people suddenly grab a book and say, have you read and get very excited and you realise you're on the tube and everybody's reading the same book. And I'm never, ever one of those people, you know, because it, I'm literally like five years, 10 years behind everybody else yeah. on the book list. But when it came out, the book One Day by David Nichols. David Nichols, yeah. It was huge, huge success. It was, wasn't it? It was. It had a very distinct cover. It was with a, the orange sort of slash on it. Yeah. And um, it was the book that everybody was reading. Every train you got on, everybody was reading um, this book. And it, yeah. you know, huge, huge success. Yeah. And has now, to put it in context, has now become... 
um, a Netflix, 14-part series yes. on Netflix. Well, I watched the film when it came out with Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis, and that was fantastic, and then went back to the book. I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? If you if you discover the, the visual before the literary, it, it, it's a different experience because if you, if you haven't had it in your head, as it were, you, there's nothing to shift or be disappointed by or excited by or reignited by. You just have that in front of you and so you mm-hmm. have their voices and faces when you go back to the book. What's interesting about Ambika Mod and Leo Woodle is um, they are so different to Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis and, and, and I suspect closer to the to the characters in David Nichols' original vision because, you know, and it was interesting, I've uh, read an interview with um, Amiga Mod since having watched the series about how she, it was a book that she absolutely loved and thought that she didn't have the qualities for Emma yeah. initially because she obviously had this image of the character in her head and loved the book so much. She thought there's no way on God's earth. Mm. And so initially she said, turn down the audition. Oh, gosh. And then it wasn't for a couple of weeks that she said, literally had this epiphany and woke up one morning and went, that's rid- of course, of course I should throw my hat into the ring. Of course I should do this. And um, because of this sort of quality of of a sort of slow burn geekiness and beauty and everything that that she's a lovely actor oh my god she was amazing in um this is going to hurt yeah absolutely she absolutely gave that series its heart and yeah yeah and it's lovely to see her again i mean just just to fill in so it's it's a 14 part series on netflix based on the book um that has just landed really and everybody is talking about it just as everybody talked about the book everybody's talking about this and it's it starts in 1988 when um they meet emma who is an english um a very clever english student from the north of england yeah and um sort of um dexter who is kind of cool and glamorous and studying anthropology and from the south and from a wealthy family and they yeah. meet on their last night at university and then it it and and, and it's since swithin's day so yeah that's the sort of like conceit of the whole thing and then they meet so the book records them meeting or what they are doing on that day every year through the next 20 years and the yeah. series does the same yeah and i think it is just i think it's such an entrancing rom-com really because of how it it does the absolute classic thing of playing on the contrast between them yeah yeah and it is so she's amazing yeah. I mean actually her accent's amazing because there's a scene where she he's trying to guess where she comes from and I'd forgotten the book and and I said to my husband she comes from Leeds and she does you know? yeah <laughs> And, but she doesn't. I mean, come on, comes from somewhere like Hertfordshire or somewhere. So yeah. she's got that part. You can hear the accent. Yeah. And yeah. he's just, he came to fame in White Lotus. Yeah. Um, as a sort of chancer in that slightly, you know, slightly dodgy chancer in the second series. And he's, they've got such, I mean, it's an overused word really, but they have got charisma together on screen. You yeah. like them being together and you yeah. like them being apart. You know, it's beautifully dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, so the first episode, just to, it links with what we were saying last week in the podcast. The first episode um, is is mainly written by Nicole Taylor, who wrote Wild Rose, and also that rather 
brilliant series about the girls who were abused in Rochdale, uh, three girls. She, those are her two sort of credits. Right, right. I and and Wild Rose was the brilliant film about country music. With, oh, with Jessie uh, Buckley, Buckley, yeah, brilliant. Fabulous film. Yeah. But the co-writer on this, the, the first, uh, an early episode, um, is Bijan uh, Shabani, who directed... Till the stars Til come the down. Till the stars come down. Yeah, yeah, And so yeah. I suddenly thought everything we'd said about that idea of theatre being a feeding ground for yes, you yes, know, absolutely. brilliant, brilliant things. There yes. you are. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. It's absolutely there. Um, and it's, it, it, yeah, it's it's very great. You've watched it all. I'm quite... Uh, yeah, I'm heard. a bit of a, a fiend and I think it was... A, Did it you watch was... it one episode at a time or did you watch it in groups because it's about 30 odd minutes each episode is now yeah I did a bit of a binge one <laughs> evening um because I'm trying to sort of help my daughter with GCSE mock revision and I think when she throws in the towel or throws me out of her room and I didn't know quite what to do and I was a bit of a, a loss and I um and I started watching it and then I just couldn't stop yeah but and which is a great testament to the flow of something and and also I think it's interesting as a sort of phenomenon in terms of taking moving a book from book to screen and then you know either from film to uh, episodic episodes or you know in this case it's a story that works very very well episodically because it is it has these natural breaks with you know moving from one year yeah, to the next structured like that yeah which in a film is great because it gives it momentum and you and you you know that's all very very useful for um an adapter or writer but there are these natural breaks and and it does uh in a couple of the episodes move forward th- through a number of years and i i found that quite interesting in terms of you, there are certain points, you know that there are natural milestones within their story about what's going on in their lives and when they realise that they want to be together and when they can actually be together and, you know, and what. And I, I find that fascinating, the natural rhythm of a story and how yeah. that then breaks down into the, how you then translate it onto screen. Yeah. But whoever did that in this case is a genius because yeah. I couldn't stop watching it. Yeah. It was brilliant. That rhythm just kept you going. Every sort of cliffhanger or moment works. It keeps you hungry for the well, story. Well, it is also the example of what the advantage of long-form television over film because I actually couldn't watch. I, f- I found the film, which I think, you know, was I found it almost unwatchable. Right. Because I loved the book very yeah. much. Okay. And I, like, you know, I think like everybody who read the book in that initial burst just to become completely engrossed. And I couldn't believe in Anne Hathaway. Right, right, a, right. You know, girl from Leeds. I just couldn't. Yeah. And um and I and, and also it's too it's too compressed because yeah. the whole wonder of the book and the, the the cleverness of its plotting is that there are these are two people who never quite get it together in the early and who are friends. And so the development of their friendship parallels the development of their their love lives at some levels. But all the time they're being pulled together. And, yeah. But it's over this incredibly extended time period. Yeah. Which obviously is what television enables you to do, to really rest with the characters. And so all the other characters who come into their lives, the mother and, and other lovers and... Yeah all the things that go wrong in their lives and all the things that go right, you you kind of can sit with them yeah. and develop them. And I think that is, it is an example of where television really scores over, um, you know, shorter forms. I mean, I, I, I one of my first, this really ages me, 
Um, but my absolute sort of entrance to culture at some levels was John Goldsworthy's The Foresight Saga, which oh, was yes. on telly when yeah, I was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I'm going to say, I was quite young when <laughs> I watched it, but I did watch it. And it introduced me to a generation of actors. You know, I love Susan Hampshire from that moment. Yeah. Martin Jarvis, Eric Porter. I had brilliant actors in it. Yes. Uh, you know, absolutely extraordinary actors. But also what hooked me was the slow development. Yes. And I noticed that the Park Theatre were about to do the Foresight Saga on stage because right. I'd been looking for family sagas for us to talk about. And that kind of idea of this long drawn out series of I think it's 12 novels yes. suddenly becoming, you know, a two hour passage on our stage. I just can't quite cope with They the did it that. again though, didn't they? With Damien Lewis. And, he did. And the yeah. Which it was also good actually. I yeah. mean, I, I love that and I actually love the novels. I mean, I, 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 I think we will do a, a podcast on family sagas and yeah. I, I think Foresight Saga is one of the great ones but the pacing of that the the slow pacing of one day and the development of the romance yeah. in it is is just perfect I thought I really love the way it I agree with you that it just picks you up and it hooks you at the you know yeah I think that's that's the genius of the writing really in terms of where you end the episodes yeah because it's sort of you Starting the episode obviously is important, but drawing you in. And also, I think, whoever designs and edits it, and, and there's a brilliant concept of the sort of the dates running through yes. and, and just the passing of time, really, and, and what changes and what doesn't change. And and actually, the, the art direction, I thought, was great it's in lovely. terms of... Yeah pacing us through the, the shifting of time and how much money they've got or they haven't got yeah. and her flat, Emma Morley's flat that yeah, she the, has. Yes, and... the changing flats is fascinating. And actually one of the other things that's really quite shocking is that, you know, it's on Netflix, They their demographic skews young. So young people are watching and you suddenly realise that they're watching period drama, just as I watch Forsyth Saga, yes, period yes. drama. To them, you know, 1988, when there are no mobile phones and... Um, you know, he's he's leaving messages with the speaking clock. Yes. It's like watching an era of complete, you know, lost history. And yes, I, yes. And, you know, obviously for the, if you're older and you've lived through those times, you think you recognise the things. But yeah. But it, it has got that, uh, you know, compelling quality. Of and the computers. The, yes. Didn't you think? I yes, mean, the big dust cover. Type, over, yes. I think that I... She starts with the typewriter. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, all of that. It, I, yeah, very, very clever, but not not shouted about you know it wasn't uh, the only it was interesting that the the design of the flat that she has when she got to Paris I thought that was interesting because it was quite bold and and oh oh I went okay but <laughs> but it but it's beautiful <laughs> but it's interesting because I was comparing it to the, the flat that they'd used in the film because you know I in both cases it's a beautiful interior but the colors of the one that they use in the television series are quite bold and it isn't a palette right um that they use at any other point in the series and I thought well that's interesting it's almost like spring has sprung because of course yeah. that's when they finally I can't say anything too much but anyway but it is interesting <laughs> that that 
the the palette of the set suddenly reflected yeah. something in the story. Well, it's also it's also I mean again the appeal of continental Europe at a time when continental Europe was distant. You know, yes, the, yes. The, so one of the many things we've lived through in our lives is that my husband loved the. Uh, there's an early episode set in Rome, and so he was kind of incredibly nostalgic about all the places in Rome yes. that it shows. And um, we've spent a lot of time in Edinburgh, which is where it starts. But it it does conjure that sense that. You know, in in our time, we have lived through Europe being a long way away yes. and then being very close, and now, you know, sadly being a bit further away again. And it's, you know, it, I think that's interesting because yeah. I, I remember, you know, Paris always seemed like, um, oh, it's such a romantic, not not even a romantic destination, but an exotic destination. Almost, yes, it yes. was so different than yeah. um, England at that time. You didn't really, this always sounds so weird, but you didn't really get croissants in England for such a long yeah, time. Yeah. And now, you know, like every supermarket has them and they're part of the meal deal. But it seems to me when I was growing up, certainly, you know, a croissant was an exotic food stuff. Yes. And, you know, if you wanted to eat one, you had to go to Paris. And I suspect it catches that. I also think the other thing, moving on just a little bit, is that it is, what's interesting is 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 the rom-com form. Um, my husband, who doesn't really like anything that makes him cry too oh, much, is no. an absolute kind of lover of the rom-com because at some levels things come right. And, yes. you know, um, and what I think with what's interesting about One Day is how cleverly it plays with that idea of two people, all rom-coms are based on the idea of two people who you can see are meant to be together. Yeah. And yet for whatever reason, can't be together. And I think that that is... It's cle- it plays with that very very cleverly, um, because it lets them be friends and yeah. then and then puts obstacles in the way of them uh, of coming together, and then living their lives. And I think it, it is the it's it's the basis of the rom com that you always feel that, you know, I don't know. I love that idea that you know. Pe- pe- I suppose it goes back to sort of Jane Austen. The reason we all like sort of Elizabeth Bennet and and Mr. Darcy is that, yes. um, you know, they are basically, you can see from page one that they're destined to be together, but they've just got to climb over their pride and their prejudice well, to that, get there. It, well, it plays into that thing that there's a sort of predestination or some kind of preordained journey for us all and that... that whoever's in charge, whether it's fate or the gods or whatever, some kind of human spirit that, that has the best intentions for us, you know, well, it's all going to come right in the end, as you say, but we look for reasons and things. We look for meaning. You know, everything about superstition, we, we're desperate for meaning because um, it's all a bit depressing if there <laughs> isn't any. But, you know, and the fact that there is it's importance about a particular day yeah. I mean, I I definitely have that in my life. I um, it's very hard as an actor not to be superstitious yeah. and you know and look for meanings and things because we have so little bloody control of, of anything in our yeah. lives at all. But I have, you know, for me, it's July the tenth. It's the day I met Joe on. It's you know, so many things have happened in our lives have happened around July the tenth, yeah. and I don't know why. Yeah. And maybe I enforce that on that day, but it's something. Magical, and I think the Romans would agree with me. Anybody that yes, has augury. studied uh, <laughs> calendars, and and yeah. so there's something about that 
in in the movie. But there, when he says at the end, she says to him, you know, I thought I'd got rid of you. And he says, I don't think you can. Yeah. I love that. I love that there are these sort of ley lines in our friendship as well as in our life. And so many stories and plays and, and films and books play on that. Yeah. Because yeah. we sort of have a sense of it and it's and it's connection and 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 the fact that there's that they don't find each other or they don't get together because they almost know too much about yeah, each other yeah. and in the end they can be together because they know each other better yeah, than anybody yeah, else in the world. And uh, it's only that it comes with age that yeah. you realise that's the thing we're all looking for. Yeah. There's an awful lot of sort of romantic um, uh, stories around the moment. I haven't watched this one, but it's just started Alice and Jack, which is another sort of... Um, where where it's difficult for people to get through and... I wonder if it is just a sense that people want... I think maybe you're right. It's, it's kind of... A, it's about love. B, it's often very funny. I mean, I love, for example, I, I still find that if Bridget Jones's diary is on, yeah, I watch yeah. Bridget Jones's diary with kind of absolute um, love and affection because, you know, that, that whole idea, again, that you know that she's meant to be uh, happy and it takes her so long to be happy. Yeah. And they often have really good sort of social observation as part of their backdrop. And I think that's the other thing. It's a bit like crime fiction that actually society is much better reflected through the prisms yeah. of romantic comedy than it is. But it's it's got a meaning, it's got a purpose, something ties up and there is a happy ever after, which we don't necessarily always find in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite? Well, I was just thinking about the lovers in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, oh, which yeah, is a yeah. Bolter's full circle. But the, the observations in that and the sort of... The, the wafer-thin wall between, you know, knowing so much about someone and then being their most loyal companion and friend. And in the scene between um, Helena and Hermia and Lysander and Demetrius where, you know, they've had this extraordinary friendship which Shakespeare gives you the sort of um, full access to within the first scene. But then when they're all fighting over men, it's like, though she be but little, she is fierce and all that, you know, that painted maypole, that it very quickly becomes nasty because they know each other so well and because they know all their deepest, darkest secrets that you can turn that on its head quite quickly. So in a way, Midsummer Night's Dream is the ultimate rom-com because it all goes wrong and by the end they all find each other. And it's sort of rather brilliant for that. So there you are, the perfect segue. Perfect segue right at the end from Shakespeare to rom-com. I think my favourite is, um, I'm just going to say, is His Girl Friday, which is is, um, Harry Grant and Rosalind Russell and uh, it's the adaptation of of, uh, ben Hex, the front page, where um, they they change the um, is about wise cracking newspaper men. Yeah, yeah. And they change one of the men into a woman, and it's a romance at its start. And and, and I think that was so much tied up with why I wanted to be a journalist because she wears amazing suits. She's got these amazing pinstripe suits and big hats, and for quite a long time I wore those. Though they didn't have the same effect in Coventry, and yeah. it didn't meet Harry Grant either. So. I just think but I do love I love those 30s wrong Oh they're absolutely just the way the it's always the moment when they get together and how what the writing is like around that that actual bit We were watching on YouTube the other day uh, the the scene in it's a wonderful life between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed when they finally get together yeah. um and uh, and they're on the phone and they get closer and closer and closer and they're talking to their friend Sam down the phone and uh talking about some investment and then um 
he turns around and he drops the phone and he goes, listen, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have children. I don't want to. And she's like, oh, George, 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 George. And he's just so gorgeous. So and I was clever. thinking about the one I watched again and again, which is a sort of one of my favourite favourites in terms of sort of compares with um, Bridget Jones, is uh, the Guernsey Potato Peel Pie and Literary Society and the scene between Lily James and Mikhail Husman at the end, who play Juliet and Dorsey. And it's just so... It's gorgeous in its awkwardness and they've sort of come to each other finally and they've got over all the obstacles. Yeah. And then she, but they're so awkward with each other and then she sort of says, you know, I, I, feel, I, I wondered if you would like to marry me. You see, I'm in love with you or something. And, and he just says, of course, of course. <laughs> and I just love it. I could just watch it again and well, again. I have never seen that one. So I am oh, God, going brilliant. to run. Brilliant. Penelope Wilson, be, yes. Tom Courtney, Ooh, um, Catherine Seth. Parkinson. Ooh, it's, it, it's so gorgeous. The book is absolutely gorgeous, but it, actually it, it has become one of my favourite films. It's so beautiful. And, um, yeah, it's a proper Sunday afternoon rom-com watch. Good. So that's what I should spend my Sunday doing. Good. But for now... But for now, that's a goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And a goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. <laughs>